This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know, for us kids from Kansas, this was better than any Animal Planet show we could have ever seen. R- right. For us kids from Kansas. We, <laughs> <laughs> we don't we, even know what a squid is. No, we, we do now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And on the way back, we were treated to a dolphin show, which was amazing. There were dozens and dozens of dolphins swimming next to the boat. And the cool thing is they had their little babies with them. It was kind of like a nursery. Yes. And they were all in the same spot where we saw the squid earlier because the dolphin were now feeding on the squid. And I think a lot of people also get to see whales. Now it depends on the season and when the whales are migrating, obviously, but that would also be a cool thing to see. Yeah. The whales eat the dolphins. No, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they do. No. Don't sugarcoat it for our (laughs) listeners, Karen. No, no. You're fired from Animal Planet. (laughs) This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other amazing public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is our mailbag episode where we answer questions from our listeners about a wide variety of topics like park itineraries, road trips, hiking trails, camping, and gear. On this episode, we're doing a short overview of Channel Islands National Park for a listener who's traveling there this summer, and we'll talk about one of the best things to do when you're visiting Voyagers National Park in Minnesota. Plus, we'll share some thoughts about hiking trails, specifically safety on the trails, and organized hiking groups, plus the latest gear available for... Wait, why am I saying this one? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should take this one. Plus, the latest gear available for women when it comes to peeing out in nature. All this and more coming up next. All right, before we get started with mailbag today, we thought we would open with some park news. There is a lot of park news. (laughs) Yeah, there's two new national monuments, Aviqua May in Nevada and Kastner Range in Texas. Took us a while to figure out how to say Aviqua May, didn't it, Matt? We practiced. Yeah, we do slip back to our old pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) Or old pronunciations. Avaquame, you were saying that? (laughs) No, 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 no. Don't start that again. We just got it figured out. So let's talk about those for a minute. Now, Kastner Range is in Texas, specifically in El Paso. And it's made up of, now, I didn't even know this, Matt, but the Franklin Mountain Range there butts up against El El Paso. And 25% of this mountain range is now within this 7,000-acre new national monument called Kastner Range. It's a small mountain range. I mean, when you're there, it looks big. Mm -hmm. They're real mountains. Yes, they are real mountains. (laughs) Yeah. What I love about this particular new national monument is it used to be a training ground for the Department of Defense for 40 years. That's right. It was part of Fort Bliss. Yeah, Fort Bliss. Mm -hmm. And they practiced shooting off ammunition. I, I don't know what kind of ammunition, but they... Uh, need to clean it up because there's some unexploded munitions in 
the area that that's now the new national monument. So you don't want to be running on out there trying to explore the new national monument. Right. You actually can't because it's not open to the public yet. Um, I think it's going to take a few years. They're trying to make a plan as to how they're going to clean this up. It says they have, I didn't know what these were, but MECs, which stands for munitions and explosives of concern. <laughs> explosives of concern. Yes. What, yes. what explosives aren't of concern? I don't know. And they have something called UXOs, which stands for unexploded ordnance. I think all the UXOs are also MECs. If it's unexploded, mm-hmm. it's of concern. Right. 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 And one thing that's really interesting about this new national monument, besides that, is that. It's been placed under the control of the U.S. Army and not the National Park Service. And actually, this is the first time since the 1930s when our national battlefields were handed over to the NPS. This is the first time that a national monument will be managed by the military branch. I can't wait for the first visitor to sass a Department of Defense ranger. Well, it won't be me. Sass them. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the people of Texas are thrilled, and I'm sure people across the country are thrilled because this is a very special place. And once they get it cleaned up, there is going to be all kinds of recreation like hiking trails and mountain biking and camping and backpacking. Yeah. And junior ranger tours to look for MECs and UXOs. (laughs) No. (laughs) There there won't be? I don't think so. I don't think that's going to be part of the plan. Yeah, so that's one of the new national monuments. The other one, as we said, was Viqua May in southern Nevada. And this is close to Las Vegas, about 90 minutes southeast of Las Vegas area. Right. And this is a big one. This is 500,000 acres. And it's spread across the Mojave Desert on the Nevada side. And it's adjacent to Mojave National Preserve, which is on the California side. And they do look very similar, don't they? They do. I guess this was used to be a Bureau of Land Management land before it became a national monument, and mm-hmm. now it's becoming part of the National Park Service. Right. It's going to be managed by both, by the BLM and the NPS. And we had a chance to visit. Now, this land um, has mountains and canyons and grasslands and the largest Joshua tree forest in the world. We drove through that. They, yes. They went on forever. It was unbelievable. Seemingly forever. There's also a rich history of rock art and other cultural sites in this new national monument. Um, so very exciting to have this particular chunk of land protected because it adds to the lake. Mead National Recreation Area surrounds it and Mojave surrounds it and some wilderness areas. So now there is just this huge block of public lands there. Now, this particular parcel of land, it's undeveloped. It's pretty rugged. Mm-hmm. It's rugged wilderness. So there's there's no visitor center. There's no park passport stamp. But it's it's great to have this huge chunk of land protected Right. It's a very, very spiritual and sacred place to the Indians who live in that area. So we visited this a few weeks ago, and we did a really fun hike in Grapevine Canyon. And we recently released a bonus episode about this over on our Patreon account. Okay, moving on to the Grand Canyon, specifically the North Rim. The opening date has been postponed due to an incredible amount of snow they've had this winter. They've got a ton of snow. I think uh, there was in places they had 15 feet of snow. They normally don't get that much. Uh, It's usually open one by by early to Mm mid-May. So they have to push that back. Right. Now the new opening date is Friday, June 2nd at 6 a.m. Yes, record-setting snow. 250 accumulated inches. Yeah, that's that's way more than 15 feet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, they had to make sure they had enough time to safely plow that State Route 67 that leads out to the North Rim. uh, And then they have to get staff in there to open the facilities. And, of course, there's a lodge back there. And so, yeah, some extra work this year to open it up. That's why there's a delay. Right. I saw a picture recently of the visitor center at the North Rim. It was completely buried under snow with just the very tip top of the roof peeking out. So they've got a lot of work ahead of them. Another piece of Grand Canyon news is that the North Kaibab Trail, 
is partially closed, and it's going to be closed until June 2nd. And the reason this is significant is a lot of people like to hike rim to rim of the Grand Canyon, but you can't do that until after June 2nd because that nor- on the north side of the canyon, it's that North Kaibab Trail that you take up to the North Rim. Right, and this closure specifically is from Cottonwood Campground to the North Kaibab Trailhead up at the top. And so no hikers will be allowed to pass through this area under any circumstances. And I heard they actually have a ranger stationed near Cottonwood Campground to prevent people from trying to sneak around. But I guess what happened was there was significant damage from rock falls and landslides, and it really did take the trail out. That's a super popular thing to do rim to rim. Oh, yes. And especially in the spring. So if you have plans to do that, you're not going to be able to complete that last section on the north side until June 2nd. Okay, what other updates do we have, Karen? What about Kings and Sequoia? All right. So at in Kings Canyon, Grant Grove is now open. So you can go see the general Grant tree. However, Cedar Grove hasn't reopened yet. And of course, it usually doesn't open, you know, this time of year yet until they plow it. Cedar Grove is the area back in the canyon. You take the road down through the canyon and it's kind of kind of looks like Yosemite Valley back there. Exactly. Yeah. I think typically this road back there opens in May once they've plowed it, but they don't know the extent of the road damage and how, how long it's going to take to repair the road. So there is no estimated reopening on that. Also, Matt, I read, and this was surprising and uh, not great news, is that the campgrounds back there are not expected to open in 2023. Oh, wow. So just closed this year. Yeah. And there was no reason given on the website. So maybe they have suffered significant damage as well. I always used to think that they have to plow the snow from the previous winter. How long could that take? Now, sometimes it's, it's deep. It's not just snow. A lot of rocks and trees come down, and and I think that takes as long as anything. So it's more than snow that piles up on some of these highways that they have to clear in the spring. Well, exactly. And, you know, then chunks of the road itself can disappear also and wash away. We found that we were recently in Death Valley, and there was some road close to significant damage from the flash floods that came through there. So this has been a tough winter on our parks. So let's go to Sequoia. Now, that main area that people want to go to where the giant forest is and the Wuxachi Lodge and Morro Rock, all of that is closed. And when do they think that's going to open? You know, there are two ways to access that area of the park. So access via Highway 180 when you go through the Kings Canyon, the Big Stump Entrance Station. (laughs) The Big Stump Entrance, yeah. That's that's one of my favorite entrances of all the National Park Service, the Big Stump Entrance. The Big Stump. So the estimated range for reopening is May 26th through June 16th. All right, so that's that entrance. But coming in from the south on Highway 198 through the Foothills Entrance Station, that estimated opening date is sometime June through July of this summer. We get a lot of emails and DMs from people who are planning trips and want advice. And I hate to tell you, but if you're coming from somewhere else where you have to fly in and, you know, sometimes you, you just don't know when these places are going to be open. So, yeah, it takes a lot of patience these days to plan a trip to some of these national park areas. It really does. Now, the good news is Yellowstone National Park's entrances are slowly reopening, and those seem to be on schedule. There are five park entrances in Yellowstone, and the north and northeast entrances are open year-round. Yeah, and the west entrance just opened on April 21st, and the east entrance will be open on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, Mm -hmm. and then the south entrance will open May 12th. 
Yeah, you know, it's really interesting how Yellowstone can pinpoint these exact opening dates. And then you have other snowy roads in the parks that have to be plowed, like going to the Sun Road and North Cascades Highway. And they are unable to predict when those will open, which I totally get. But boy, that Yellowstone National Park, (laughs) they are on it. Well, they are. However, those dates can change. We have been there. We were there one Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, the, the roads may open. But they may close again. That's a good point. Yes. <laughs> They're going to do their best to open. And, m- and maybe they will open on these dates and they might close a week later. <laughs> right. That's a really good point because we've been there Memorial Day weekend twice. And both times we have been in a blizzard. So just because they're reopening and it feels like spring and it you know feels like progress, there can be some backsliding. <laughs> that's, that's right. Okay, so those are some updates mm-hmm. on uh, Yellowstone. Last piece of news before we get to the body of our episode here is a lot of parks are going cashless. And you would think that this wouldn't be a big deal, but it's kind of turning into a big deal. It is. This is a new trend where national parks are not accepting cash anymore at the entrance station kiosks and for various permits. And so far, we have Mount Rainier, we have Lassen Volcanic, Badlands, Death Valley. Now I can see, I mean, they do have a really good reason for this. Well, they do. And if you notice on that list, a lot of those are remote parks. And part of the problem is when the park takes in cash, then they have to do something with that cash. They have to count it. They have to securely store it. They have to contract with a company like a a Brinks or some armored car company to come and get it. They found in Death Valley, for instance, that last year they took in $22,000 of cash from from the entrance stations, but it cost them $40,000 to process it. That's unbelievable. So that just doesn't make sense. Now, we should say that it seems to be that this going cashless does not affect the concessionaires or the bookstores, which are a lot of times run by concessionaires and by foundations and things. So I believe that at the bookstores, restaurants, hotels inside the park, people will still be able to pay cash if they want to. What this affects is the money that the ranger specifically handles. Right, because those concessionaires are private enterprises that have contracts with the park to be able to operate, and they just they just take the cash and like put it in a sock and, and, <laughs> right. and, and give it to one of the employees and say, you know, deposit this when you get back to civilization. They don't need an armored truck. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the reason this is causing kind of a stir is because there are people who don't have credit cards. Um, and so the worry is, is that these people will no longer be able to access these national parks that don't take cash However, I did see that the parks are working with some partners, some local businesses outside the parks, like, you know, little gas stations and and things like that, where those businesses will sell the park pass and will take cash for it. I'd do that. I could be a concessionaire selling entrance tickets to the parks. We just park outside, (laughs) outside the park, give us your 20 bucks. Uh Uh-huh. And then you're going to let them in? Yes, they might get a Dirtlander sticker uh, with their entrance ticket. And just, yeah, just tell the ranger you've already paid and sh- show them this. Yeah. That, that might not be your best idea, Matt. <laughs> okay, well, there's some kinks to work out. But. Yes, there is. Anyway, just an update on that. So if you're someone who likes to pay cash, which I know a lot of people do, you might want to check out some of these parks ahead of time and make sure that they still take cash. Right. I'm sure they take debit cards. They say credit cards, but I think that that means any kind of electronic payment. Anyway, this is happening and it's probably going to spread to a lot of parks. So just heads up. That's right. All right, Matt. I think that is all for the park news. Should we move on to mailbag? Sure. Let's go. Okay. What's our first question, Karen? 
All right. This one comes from Sharon in Bradenton, Florida. And she wrote, I will be traveling to California in July for about a week. Sequoia and Kings Canyon are on the itinerary as well as Channel Islands. I've already listened to your episodes about Sequoia and Kings Canyon, but I'm wondering about Channel Islands. What are your suggestions for things to do at the park and places to stay nearby? We're interested in both hiking and possibly kayaking. All right. Okay. Well, I see that you've outlined your answer and it's three pages long. So <laughs> this is the short overview I mentioned My in goodness. the intro. <laughs> People want information, uh, Matt, and right. we're here to provide it. Okay. <laughs> so Sharon, you might already know this, but Channel Islands National Park is made up of five islands. So there's Anacapa, Santa Cruz, Santa Rosa, San Miguel, and Santa Barbara Islands. And all of these islands can only be reached by boat. And the ferries out to these islands are run by a company called Island Packers. So Island Packers, they offer departures from Oxnard, Oxnard, they offer departures from Oxnard Harbor and Ventura Harbors. Is that how you say Oxnard? Oxnard? Oxnard. (laughs) <laughs> they they leave from Oxnard Harbor. I think you got it, Matt. You Did, nailed it. <laughs> could you just edit it and just take one of those Oxnards, Oxnards out? No, we're good. My God. We're good. <laughs> Can we just move on? Ventura and Oxnard Harbors are about 20 minutes apart. <laughs> and there is no transportation between the islands unless you have your own boat. So you, Sharon, are going to have to choose one island to visit on your day in Channel Islands. But they could go back to Oxnard and then go to another island. Sure. If you yeah. had more than one day, you, yeah. could, you could do You could do that as several. often as you want. Right. There's no limit. Okay. However, Santa Barbara Island, there are no boats running to that island currently due to pier damage. So, so check that one off your list. And two others have limited sailings. The San Miguel. Miguel. Did I say that right? San Miguel. We just. This is, I think this is going to be our best mailbag episode ever. We are doing so well. Yeah, I know this. I is, know. This is good. We, we are. Good. We are one paragraph into the three-page outline of our first question. All right. All the trails and facilities on that particular island are closed to the public until emergency repairs can be made to some parts of the island. So that one is almost completely closed. And Santa Rosa, certain areas are closed to protect the island wildlife. So basically, Sharon, this boils down to you have two choices, Santa Cruz and Anacapa. And the ferries are offered daily to those islands year round. Yeah, so it's also important to know that there are no services on the islands. So you got to bring all your foods, your snacks, your sunscreen, especially water. Yes. Any protection you need from the sun because, you know, during the summertime, well, really kind of anytime during the year, it can be sunny. And very hot in the summer. Now, the main visitor center is in Ventura, California on the mainland, and it's open daily from 830 to 5. There is another visitor center in Santa Barbara. It's a little outdoor visitor center, and it's open from 11 to 5 daily. The big one is in Ventura, which is where we stopped, and then we took the Santa Cruz boat from Ventura. Now, Santa Cruz is the largest island in Channel Islands National Park. It's also considered to be the best for day trips or camping as it's got the largest variety of things to do in the Channel Islands, in terms of, at least in terms of recreation activities. There are two different docking points on the island, so you're going to have to choose a ferry that goes specifically to one of those points. There's Prisoner's Cove, and that's about an hour and a half to a two-hour sailing. And there is Scorpion Dock, and that is about an hour sailing. All of these sailing times could be longer if wildlife is spotted along the journey. And there are hiking trails in both areas. We're going to talk about what we did. We visited Santa Cruz. So so on this overview, Sharon, we're not going to talk about the other one, Anacapa, because we haven't been there and we don't know what that one's like. Yeah, when we went there, we left Ventura at 8 a.m., and then we we took the boat to Scorpion Harbor on Santa Cruz Island. Once we docked, we had six hours to explore the island, and so we visited 
the Island's Visitor Center at uh, Scorpion Ranch, and then we hiked to Smuggler's Cove, and that was a seven and a half mile loop. It was a beautiful hike. Yeah, it was somewhat strenuous too. It was about uh, 1,000 to 1,500 feet of elevation gain. And that comes from climbing out of Scorpion Beach in the beginning and back out of Smuggler's Cove at the end. But amazing views, a beautiful beach, and there was even a grove of olive trees down there, which was really surprising. And the nice thing was we were the only people there. However, part of the area we hike through is currently closed due to restoration efforts from a fire in 2020. Yes. Now, you can still hike to Smuggler's Cove if you hike along Smuggler's Cove Road. But some of the viewpoints that we were able to walk back to, um, viewpoints that we stopped at are currently closed while that whole area um, restores itself from the fire. And maybe the rangers have some suggestions for other hikes. Sure. And, you know, I think one of my favorite things about this, and this was completely unexpected because I was excited to see the island itself. I never even considered how phenomenal the boat ride was going to be both out to the island and back. Right. We thought it was just kind of a, you know, ferry ride. You know, right. It's going to take you from point A to point B. But about halfway to the island, on the way there, they stopped the boat they stopped it because there were squid feeding in the water. There were large squid eating small squid. Uh, and it just like a feeding frenzy, flashes of red color in the water. They would shoot their little tongue things out and capture... <laughs> Um, Shoot their tongue things out. Yeah, that's what that's what they do. <laughs> this, is, this is my your... Animal Planet okay. episode, so thank you. Okay, so these were, they told us, giant Humboldt squid. And this flashing that Matt was explaining, when they change colors from black to red, this is associated with visual contact with other squid. And it's very cool because their bodies are changing color throughout the entire length, changing from black to red. And yeah, you see these flashes in the water. And, you know, for us kids from Kansas, this was like, this was better than any Animal Planet show we could have ever seen. R right. For us kids from Kansas, we, <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know what a squid is. No, we, we do now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And on the way back, we were treated to a dolphin show, which was amazing. There were dozens and dozens of dolphins swimming next to the boat. And the cool thing is they had their little babies with them. It was kind of like a nursery. Yes. And they were all in the same spot where we saw the squid earlier because the dolphin were now feeding on the squid. And so when we say there might be wildlife sightings on the boat ride to and from the island. You could you could see some cool stuff. And I think a lot of people also get to see whales when they're headed out there. Now, it depends on the season and when the whales are migrating, obviously, but that would also be a cool thing to see. Yeah, the whales eat the dolphins. No, they don't. <laughs> they do. yes, yes, they do. No. Don't sugarcoat it for our listeners, Karen. No, no. You're fired from Animal Planet. <laughs> Okay, so Sharon, we looked up another option for you. Another thing that you could do on Santa Cruz is Island Packers Ferry also has a Prisoner's Harbor tour with a painted cave excursion option. So apparently, we did not know about this back when we visited. There is a very cool cave called Painted Cave. And I saw some photos of it online and it's like has its blues and greens and it looks very cool. And, and you know how I love caves anyway, Matt. Only you could find a cave tour option for islands in the Pacific Ocean, Karen. So what they do is, this particular boat ride, if you book it, they stop at Prisoner's Harbor dock to offload people and gear who are going on camping trips and day trips. And then the boat goes on to the Painted Cave along the north shore of the island. And it's a 64-foot catamaran. And I guess because of its size, it's able to enter the cave, the first part of the cave, the large part. And this is one of the largest known sea caves on the planet. So there's no landing there. You don't dock. You don't get off in the cave. But it would be so cool just to be able to boat into it and, and take some photos and see it. Doesn't that sound amazing, it, Matt? It, it does. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really underground. No, it's no. not an underground cave. No, it's not yeah. like it's somebody's 
basement that that we're in, like most caves. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then after they do the boat ride through the cave, they go back to Prisoner's Harbor, where then you can get off and you have about three hours to spend the rest of the day. You can hike or have a picnic lunch um, and just explore the Prisoner's Harbor area. So who's coming up with the names of these places? I don't know. Prisoner's Harbor and Smuggler's Cove and Scorpion. Is there like a... (laughs) It's kind of a theme, isn't it? Dead Man's Hollow. (laughs) (laughs) There might be a good History Channel in that, but we unfortunately don't have time on Mailbag to go into History Channel. No, because we've got a three-page outline for one question. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so you've got that option, Sharon. Now, you had mentioned kayaking, and we do want to note that on the National Park Service website, I'm going to read this because this is important for anyone who wants to kayak. Quote, Sea kayaking is a high-risk activity that's caused the death of park visitors and annually numerous near-fatal accidents with sea kayaks occur in the park. The challenging and quickly changing weather and at times extreme sea conditions and dangerous sea caves add to the risks of sea kayaking in the park. Sea kayaking on your own in any area of the park should not be attempted by beginner or first-time kayakers, end quote. So we're not doing that. No, that's why we didn't do it. However, there's good news. Yeah, the good news is you could go with an authorized park guide or outfitter. And the Park Service strongly recommends for your safety that you go with an authorized outfitter. And the park only has one authorized outfitter, and that's Channel Islands Adventure Company. Um, Not only do they offer guided sea kayak tours, but they also rent snorkel equipment and they do guide snorkel tours at the Scorpion Dock on Santa Cruz. So Sharon, if you're going to book a kayak tour online, you'll also have to book your Island Packers ferry boat ticket separately and then you meet up with them on Santa Cruz Island. Right. And the kayak tour takes about four hours. Uh, The first hour is orientation and gearing up. And then the tour itself is about a two and a half to three hours of kayaking. During that time, you'll be paddling about two and a half to three miles. So it's about a mile an hour. Yeah. I think that would be fun. Would you like to do that sometime, Matt? Sure. Yeah, put it in the bucket. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Sharon. So you said you're going in July. Summer is a good time to visit, but as we mentioned, it can get really hot there. So make sure you take a hat and sunscreen and lots of water. When we went, we took a small cooler that had our lunch in it and some cold drinks, and we stored it near the visitor center. You know, they do insist that you have proper storage for your food because on the island, there are little foxes foxes yeah Mm -hmm. yes (laughs) that will get your food i forgot that we did take a small cooler yeah yeah did we put it in like a bear box where where did we put it i I think we put it in a in a park provided container yes we did yeah now when we went it was late september and I look back on our photos, and the island was very brown. The grasses were brown. Everything was brown, which, you know, didn't mean a lot to us at the time. But since then, I've seen photos that were taken in the springtime, and everything is just brilliant green, and there are flowers. So I think next time I would want to go in the spring. Yeah, certainly by the end of summer, it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty dry there. They do say on the website, though, that summer is the ideal time for sailing, snorkeling, diving, kayaking, and swimming. Plus, whale watching begins for both the blue and humpback whales. Yeah, the whales that eat the dolphins. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Karen, also in late January through March, the island fox pups are born. Wouldn't that be adorable to see? Yeah. Oh, so cute. Okay, where to stay? Yes. So most of the sailings are out of Ventura. Some are out of Oxnard, (laughs) as we've mentioned before. Uh, So there's a lot of chain hotels in and around that area. You've got the Marriott's, the Sheridan's, Holiday Inn, Best Western. So there's a lot of chains. We don't have a specific recommendation, but there's plenty of places to stay. Right, within walking distance, if that's what you want. I think we stayed in a Hampton Inn, but yes, lots of choices there in Ventura or Oxnard. Okay, Sharon, so I hope that helps. Make sure that you get online as quickly as possible to book those ferry tickets because they do sell out. 
That's right. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, we're going to move on to Voyagers National Park in Minnesota. And Katie wrote to us, A friend and I take a national park road trip every summer. One of the parks we'll visit this summer is Voyagers. We'll have about a half a day to explore. What should we do with that limited amount of time? Are there any short hikes we can take? We have to earn our walking stick medallion. We don't have any walking stick medallions. I know. Why don't we do that? We don't even have any walking sticks. No, we don't uh, have any of that. we got trekking poles. I don't think we can put medallions on them. No, I feel like we missed out. You're definitely <laughs> missing out on, on something. <laughs> All right. This email was actually kind of a surprise because we had never really looked into the hiking trails in Voyagers. Most people see that park on the water. But there are some short hiking trails available, ranging anywhere from half a mile to three miles. And the Voyagers website has a list of the hikes with descriptions. Yes, and we already sent this link to Katie. Now, the reason we wanted to mention her email is because if you want to see the park on the water and you're not a boater yourself, then you should book a ranger-led boat tour. And those tickets for this summer are already up for sale. Yeah, so this year, in 2023, the tickets went up for sale on April 15th on recreation.gov. If you're hearing this for the first time and are interested in a boat tour this year, you want to get on it and uh, get your reservations. Absolutely, because they do sell out. So in Voyagers National Park, there are three visitor centers. There's Cabotogama, Rainy Lake, and Ash River. And there are different boat tours that go out from each visitor center. Now, the big one, I think the big one, the marquee boat tour in the park is the Kettle Falls Cruise. It's about six and a half hours. We did that one when we really enjoyed it. It was a kind of a fast-moving pontoon boat. It goes to the historic Kettle Falls Hotel, which opened in 1913. And you can only get there by boat. And we talked about this hotel in our Halloween Haunted Lodges episode. Yes, it's a very cool hotel. Um, and you can stay there if you want to, or you can just like we did stop in and have lunch and kind of walk around the property. So this particular boat tour takes about two and a half hours to get up to Kettle Falls Hotel. Then you spend around two hours there and then they take you back and it's about another two hour cruise on your way back to the visitor center. Um, You can bring your own lunch if you want to, or you can have lunch at the hotel, which is what we did. And we not only went to Kettle Falls, but we stopped a lot of islands along the way. We stopped just offshore because we were seeing eagles and and people were very interested in seeing the eagles. So there are some wildlife sightings or, or could be on the way. Right. And the two rangers on board told us some great stories about early settlers in the park. And it was it was a very interesting, very fun day. Yeah. So there are other boating options offered by the park, but just pay attention as to where the boats leave from. Right. Because they all leave from different places. And so if you don't have time to do the six and a half hour Kettle Falls, they have they have some boat options that are like two hours long. They're all on recreation.gov with the descriptions and, and where they leave from. Yeah. Now, as far as where to stay We stayed at the Sandy Point Lodge and Resort on Cabotogama Lake. And that was nice. It was nice. Yeah, I yeah. remember eating in the lodge uh, mm-hmm. dinner. That was that was good. And it's the only place we've stayed up there, so we don't have any uh, other recommendations. But uh, Sandy Point was great. It was. And they have paddleboard rentals, and they have a beach there. So there are some other things to do when you're there. We were a little pressed for time by the time we did the all-day boat tour and spent the night. Then we had to head out. But yeah, lots of options for things to do in the park. But again, mostly water-based. Right. It's a, it's a water-based park. <laughs> so we hope you have a good time in the park, Katie, and you and your friend to get those hiking medallions. Yeah. 
feeling left out here. <laughs> I don't have any hiking medallions. I just, I just have a couple of pairs of worn out hiking boots. There you go. <laughs> okay, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, this one comes from Loretta in Tallahassee, Florida. And she wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, we're already starting to plan some trips for 2024. And we're wondering if you ever lead organized hiking trips in the national parks. If so, we would love to join one. Just our own hikes, just the two of us aren't that well organized a lot of times. So <laughs> no, I'm not sure that we're the ones who should be organizing hikes. Right. A lot of times we're organizing it as we're driving. Yes. <laughs> you want to be careful what you ask for. <laughs> yeah. No, but there are a few reasons why we don't organize hikes. Um, and, and one of them is, a lot of people don't know this, but there is a general rule, sometimes it's a real regulation, but when you're hiking in public lands, you really need to keep your groups to 12 people or fewer. And that's kind of like a general rule in, in public lands. Like I said, in some national parks, it's, it's a hard and fast rule. We have been on trails where we see 30, 40 people, and it just is disruptive. It makes it uh, noisy and difficult for other hikers, and the, the land managers want to spread people out. Exactly. And, you know, if you think about it, really, the whole point of hiking in our public lands, at least for us, is to get away from the noise and the hustle and the bustle and, and to find some solitude and to disconnect in nature. And that's tough to do if you're hiking with a group, you know, of a couple dozen people. Yeah, when you have a larger group, it in, it increases the litter, the human waste, the crowding of restrooms, the attraction sites. So we don't encourage larger groups uh, when we're in hiking in public lands. Right. However, we know of a lot of small hiking groups. I know of a ton of women's groups, and they get together once a week, and, and they take turns choosing a hike. And we think that's great. You know, when you have like six, let's say six people, because then it becomes something to look forward to. It becomes a routine. It's something fun. There's, there's also some safety in numbers, right? So we're not discouraging the small groups. Uh, that's a great way to get out and hike. It's those large groups that are disruptive to other hikers. And we have even seen larger groups, groups larger than 12 at trailheads who are very respectful of the the process and they'll go off six or seven at a time and, and just time it so that they're not all bunched up. And so that's great. I mean, we don't want to discourage people from, uh, you know, you know, having get-togethers in in public lands, but uh, yeah, you really need to keep it to twelve or fewer. Yes, we just read this article about a Washington State man who had organized a rim-to-rim hike at Grand Canyon National Park a few years ago for get this a hundred and thirty-nine people. Now, the groups are limited at Grand Canyon to 11 people. Um, so he just pleaded guilty recently to a misdemeanor charge, and he admitted violating the park's rule, and he was sentenced to two years of probation and also is prohibited from entering all parks in northern Arizona for two years. But I guess what happened, Matt, is I think he was posting this on Facebook and the park got wind of it. And he was warned ahead of time about the size limits and he went ahead with it anyway. And he kept recruiting hikers. He posted itineraries and lists of people. And he collected thousands of dollars in registration fees to cover his guide services and transportations and other things like that. Yeah, that's an extreme case. Um, so yeah, you have to be in, in public lands, you have to be careful about organized activities. Well, yes. And especially, I mean, specifically at Grand Canyon, any organized group of people or any nonprofit group conducting rim-to-rim hikes needs to get a special use permit from the park. So I guess the point is anyone who wants to hike in these groups needs to look at the park rules as far as how many can be in the group, do they need a special permit, and things like that. Yeah. The other reason is, you know, we don't we just don't want to be responsible for other people. I mean, we're bar- we're barely responsible for ourselves. <laughs> and you know, there's you know, hiking is is not a 100% safe activity, right? I mean, there have been times where 
I've fallen off cliffs before and landed in thorn bushes and and you know it really kind of takes all of our concentration to take care of ourselves. Uh, that's really all we want to be responsible for. And, you know, everyone has a different hiking speed and a different hiking ability. Um, some people like to make frequent stops and others like to hike quickly. So, you know, trying to organize that as well and, and be responsible for everyone in the group, that's just not something that we would be comfortable with. It's just the more people you have the more bathroom breaks you're going to have. It's going to be hard controlling the speed. So anyway, we would encourage smaller groups. Right. And we um, we have hiked in larger groups when we were on our river trips. You know, they take the whole group. So, you know, people are talking to each other. There's sometimes people are singing. It's just a whole different thing. And we like to have solitude. We don't even usually talk to each other when we're No, hiking. no. We have to keep the talking... <laughs> Limited, um, no whistling. There's absolutely, we have an absolute no whistling policy. Or singing. Or sing, well, singing, yeah. Mostly no singing. <laughs> All right. Anyway, for any beginner hikers listening who aren't comfortable setting off on their own and, and would like to be part of a group, there are some parks that have ranger led hikes. So look into that because that's a great option. Not only do you have a ranger taking you out so you have some assurances of safety, but you're also going to learn a lot about the park and the fauna and flora while you're on that hike. Yeah, and they know what they're doing. They do. Which a lot of times we don't know what we're doing. Right. Yeah, so you, you don't want to experiment with us. <laughs> yeah. Also, in some areas, um, some of the more popular areas, there are local guides that you could hire for yourself or for your family to accompany you if you're unsure. So there's that option as well. Yeah, we have friends who have hired guides and it works out great for them. And it might be the only one or two trips they do all year and they're on a tight time schedule and a guide's a good way to go because they'll take you right to the, the best spots. Right. So Katie, that is our very long-winded answer in our way of saying, no, we do not lead guided hiking trips. But thanks for thinking of us. Maybe we should just do a meetup at a brewery instead. <laughs> so much easier. <laughs> okay, Karen, our next question is from Lori in New Jersey, and she writes, I'm envious of the fact that as a couple, you both enjoy traveling and hiking. My husband and I have different hobbies, so my adventuring is solo. On some hikes, I have felt nervous being miles from the trailhead by myself. I'm not as worried about environmental dangers as I am of people who prey on women who are hiking alone. How often do you see solo female hikers? Do I have a reason to be concerned? I know that a buddy system is the best way to go, but not everyone has somebody willing to go with them. Okay, that's a great question, Lori. So first of all, your first question, how often do you see solo female hikers? We see them all the time. Like literally every hike we do. Yes. We, we see solo female hikers. And as a father of adult females, mm -hmm. I worry about that. My adult daughters out there hiking by themselves. But Matt, would you be worried for their safety as far as becoming lost or injured or wild animals? Or would you be worried about someone preying on them, a, a human? Honestly, I think I'd be more worried, and it's not even a gender thing, just somebody hiking alone. A lot of times when we read stories about something that's gone wrong in the wilderness, a lot of times it is environmental. Right. You know, a lot of times it's particularly when they're hiking in elevation, snowstorms come in. And we're not talking about hiking in January and a blizzard comes in. There, there are people on Mount Rainier who go out for a hike in June and, and a whiteout comes through. Uh, so I, I'm just a little concerned about people hiking solo, regardless if it's a man or a woman. I don't know that... I would worry about somebody preying on a solo female hiker, uh, but I'm not a I'm not a female. So I, I look. What's your opinion on this? Well, first of all, I like to read the National Park Incident Reports online. You can find these reports where the park lists um, things that have happened that law enforcement rangers have been called out to deal with, and. There are a lot of bizarre things that happen in the parks, but never have I read of or heard of 
a woman being attacked on a hiking trail in a national park, except in a few rare instances when it was by her husband or boyfriend, you know, someone that she knew. Yeah, we did. We did ask a Canyonlands National Park law enforcement ranger about this, and she has had a long career in many national parks. And her reply was, of all the parks I've worked, I haven't responded to any of those calls. So that's a little reassuring. It is, definitely. So I think, Lori, it's really good that you're aware of that, but I don't think that you should be worried to the point where it's going to spoil your hike. Now, there are a couple of things that you could do um, just for some peace of mind. And one is definitely have with you either mace. I know a lot of women carry, you know, small handheld mace or bear spray, which we always have on hikes. I think bear spray is a really good personal defense item to have. Uh, if you ever need it to protect yourself against an, another person, uh, honestly, in a lot of cases, I think the bear spray is even more effective than a gun. It's it's just essentially really powerful mace. And Matt and I always have our bear spray in the outside water bottle pocket of our backpacks, even when we hike in places where there aren't bears. And I'm sure people are looking at our bear spray and laughing at us like, oh, don't these people know there are no bears here? But it is for personal protection. First of all, you know, there are mountain lions and there are other animals that hikers should be worried about. And of course, you never know when you might come across someone who, you know, might wish you harm. So I think that is a really good thing to have with you. Right. It buys you some time. Now, another thing that you should do is if you are hiking and you hear footsteps, you hear someone coming up behind you. What I would do is stop, turn around, look them in the eyes, step aside and let them pass. Make eye contact. Don't let them pass you from behind because you don't know who it is. I'm sure 99% of the time it's going to be perfectly fine. But stop, turn around and and see who's coming up behind you. One of the um, most important personal defense tips is be aware of your environment. Right. Right. Know who's around you. If there's somebody behind you, be aware of it. Uh, Keep track of them. Um, And then also, you know, our other piece of advice would be, if you're nervous about this, then stick to the more popular hikes in the national parks where there are people around. And you're unlikely to have long stretches of being by yourself in the wilderness. There is some safety in, in numbers and having, you know, frequent hikers going by you on the trail. Yeah, if you're hiking on a trail, and even if it's uh, there's not that many other hikers, it's good to kind of know what other hikers are on the trail. Yeah, we've we've been on trails where people have gotten hurt, and it's kind of nice to have this mental inventory of some of the other hikers that are you know maybe a half a mile ahead of you or a half a mile behind you to just know who else is out there if you do need help. Right, and you know the hiking community overall is an amazing community of people out enjoying our public lands and they want to help other hikers and they're generous and they're always a good source of help should you need it. But obviously, someone could prey on women anywhere at any time. But I think overall, our hiking trails in the national parks are a pretty safe place to be. And one last thing, Always make sure that a friend or loved one knows where you're hiking, what time you're heading out on the trail, and when you're expected back. This is super important. Yes. So happy trails, Lori. You know, we think it's wonderful that you aren't letting the lack of a hiking partner hold you back. Okay, Karen, is that it? We have one more question, Matt, and you're going to love this one. Okay, what is it? Okay, this comes from Dee Dee, and she wrote... I have one comment that I feel has been missed when discussing all the different gear needed when hiking. Has Karen by now discovered the Tinkle Bell female urination device? If not, please research it and buy one. It's been a game changer for me and the ladies I hike with. Imagine pulling off to the side of the road on Moki Dugway, going to the side of the car away from the road and using one of these to pee right beside the road. And no one can see any of your private bits. This is a this is a personal experience of mine with my best hiking buddy. She and I had a 10-day trip in southern Utah and we used them everywhere. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Uh, thank you everyone for tuning in. 
<laughs> next week we'll have a different episode about a different topic. <laughs> it has okay. nothing to do with peeing in the <laughs> national parks. All right, Dee Dee. I have not tried it, but I looked it up. And first of all, huge points to the company for coming up with the name Tinkle Bell. Okay, how much do we love that? And their slogan their slogan on their website, let Petum ring. <laughs> Go on. It's, 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 it's genius. Well, I haven't tried it either. Uh, I have my own Petum device uh, myself. But on one of our Grand Canyon Dory trips, we had a boat woman who used one at the edge of the river. I know. And she was standing up peeing at the edge of the river like all the men. And I have to say, the rest of us women on the trip were envious that she could just go over and stand up and pee like that. There's nothing I can say right now that that wouldn't get me in trouble. I just like that. I'm going to let you answer this one. Okay. So, Didi, thank you for that recommendation. I will definitely get one of those and try it. I think it, it, it seems like a really great alternative. I did want to mention, too, some people have sent me links to a company called She Fly Apparel. And this company makes hiking pants that have a zipper that goes all the way around the crotch area. So apparently what they did is they have a traditional zipper on the pants, you know, so you can take your pants on and off. But then there is this secondary zipper that starts below the first fly and it extends all the way around to the back of the pant. And this lets you you know, unzip your pants, and then you can pee without having to pull your pants down. Okay, I'm just going (laughs) to jump in here. That that is not a place you want interlocking metal teeth. I'm just just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to disparage the She Fly Mm -hmm. apparel folks, but... I'm just just saying you got to watch the zipper. You do have to watch the zipper. And I don't quite understand then, are you not supposed to wear underwear with these pants? Are you I, supposed to go yeah, commando? This is, this or do you just pull the underwear aside? <laughs> downhill so fast. <laughs> All right. But the SheFly apparel gets lots of five-star reviews, gets really great reviews. Now, I didn't see any stores that sell these um, hiking pants. I think you have to order them online from their website. And this is where I have an issue because it's really tough for me to buy hiking pants online. There's a lot of issues that I struggle with. Even if this pee zipper is the greatest thing in the universe, it's tough because as most women know, you have to find pants that fit you correctly, where the waist isn't too high or too low. And one of my pet peeves is when that fabric is like swishy, and when you walk, it there's like this swishy sound. I faded out <laughs> at pea zipper. <laughs> and I don't know what. I don't know. <laughs> All right, enough about the zipper crotch. I do want to mention one more thing that I do have and use and love, and I would recommend it to all women, is the Kula cloth. That's K-U-L-A. And this is a pee cloth that you use to wipe with instead of toilet paper. So you can take a little bit of your pee home with you. (laughs) Maybe that's a marketing slogan that they could use. That's a freebie. You guys, Kula cloth people can use that. So the way this works is it's it's a piece of fabric, basically, that's about six inches by six inches. And there are a lot of designs that they print on one side of the Kula cloth. And on the other side is a plain black dimpled side, which is what you wipe with. And the fabric is antimicrobial and resistant to odors. And then what's really cool is it's there's a, a little strap and a snap that's attached to it. So you can hang it on your backpack on the outside and kind of let it air dry so i so i can look at it for the next three miles until you use it again right (laughs) i love this because i used to take a plastic baggie with toilet paper and another plastic baggie to put the used toilet paper in so this is great because it eliminates the need for toilet paper for peeing, now let's just be clear, this is only for pee, not if you have to poop. That's a different just thing. We won't. <laughs> when I thought it couldn't get worse. I thought we were pulling up. 
thought we were pulling out of the dive. <laughs> and you took us lower. Do we have any other questions? No, I have one more thing to say about the Kula cloth. These are available either on the, the Kula website or they're also in a lot of retail stores like REI and things like that. And they run around 20 to $24. Also, you know, Mother's Day is coming up. This would be a great gift for Mother's Day Great, well. yeah. <laughs> and if I didn't already say this, when I get home from the hike, I just throw it in the washing machine with my hiking clothes, wash it, and it's good as new. Yeah, or, or I have seen you pull it out of your backpack like uh, 18 months later. There's that. That that happens sometimes. <laughs> All right. All right we're, let's move on. Okay. That is actually it, Matt. Okay, we, great. We're done. We're ending on a high note. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. If you have a question for our mailbag exclamation point episodes, please send it to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. And thanks also for your incredible response to our episode about the CCC. It was so wonderful to find out that many of you are as enthralled by the CCC era as we are. We got lots of comments and emails and and listeners sent us photos of the CCC worker statues from around the country. Yeah, there are so many great stories from our national parks. Yeah, which is good for us because, you know, eventually... We're going to run out of park overviews to do. So maybe this will just become History Channel all the time. <laughs> all history, all the time. <laughs> and you, you could throw in a few Animal Planet. I, I could do the animal. I, I, I will be the animal guest host. Talk about different kinds of mammal. We'll do uh, like Mammal Mondays and uh, I don't know. Just don't tell people that the uh, whales ate the dolphins. <laughs> you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to do a little better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I won't say that. Anymore.